What if I told you that the United States was involved in a top-secret project that tested the effects of LSD on unwitting citizens? What if that same government tried to harness the drug's mind-altering properties for mind control and psychological torture? Would you trust that government? I'm Catherine Olmsted, a professor of history at the University of California, Davis, and a scholar of conspiracy theories. The project I just described was called MKUltra, and it was very much real. This is State of Conspiracy. Over the course of the next four episodes, we'll explore the rise of government conspiracies and anti-government conspiracy theories in the wake of the election of President Donald Trump and look back on the events that got us here. I'll be speaking with fellow historians and conspiracy experts to examine how and why conspiracy theories have become normalized in today's politics. In 1996, I published my first book called Challenging the Secret Government, which analyzed the investigations of the CIA and FBI by Congress and the press right after Watergate. These investigations had revealed many secret government projects that were illegal or ethically questionable, including CIA drug testing programs, CIA plots with the mafia to kill Fidel Castro, CIA domestic spying, and the FBI surveillance of Martin Luther King Jr. This book was not a bestseller, I was not a high-profile author. I didn't even have my own office as a part-time instructor at UC Davis. Yet, I started getting fan mail, and more surprisingly, requests for help. Many of my correspondents believed that they had been part of CIA mind control experiments. One caller wanted me to recommend a dentist who could find the CIA transmitters in his molars. He was looking for my help, he said, because no dentist had been able to find them. I put my notes on these conversations and on all of the letters and newspaper clippings I received in one file. I labeled it Letters from Wackos. But then, very occasionally, I would get phone calls or letters from people with stories that checked out. One woman told me a story about her boyfriend, who she said was a whistleblower within the CIA, and I later read news articles about him. He was real, and her story was true. I found that it's not always easy to evaluate conspiracy theories about U.S. secret agencies because there are, in fact, real conspiracies involving these agencies. The line between a wacko, as I had insensitively labeled my correspondence, and a real victim, or a real whistleblower, was sometimes hard to discern. At the least, these few instances of real, proven government conspiracies help explain the hold of anti-government conspiracy theories on the popular imagination. So how do we contextualize Trump in all this? How did Donald Trump successfully use conspiracy theories to gain attention and get elected? I sat down with journalist and author of Republic of Lies, Anna Merlin, to discuss the surge of conspiracy theories today and why they may be more insidious than we think. How would you define a conspiracy theory? So the operating definition of a conspiracy theory that I used in my book was that it is a belief that a small group of powerful people are working in secret against the common good. And a conspiracy is when a small group of powerful people are, in fact, working against the common good. Americans' trust in their government has been plummeting over the last several decades, but it's particularly over the last 10 years. Why do you think there has been such a steep decline in trust, not only in the government, but also in the media? I mean, the government one is sort of not hard to figure out. And you write about this, obviously, in Real Enemies, is that the revelation of all these secret government programs led people to believe that there was more yet to be revealed and also that the government was capable of just about anything. When you're talking about things like CIA mind control, and overthrowing democratically elected leaders of other countries, the Iran-Contra scandal, those things, it makes sense that there was such a precipitous decline 
in trust in government. Um, trust in media, I would argue, as a journalist, is a little bit more deliberate. It's a little bit more forceful. I think that it is a direct response by government actors to our declining trust in government. Because if you destabilize trust in media, that means that you don't necessarily have to believe or take stock in anything that the media is reporting. I mean, we see Donald Trump do this all the time. This is why he is so obsessed with the lying, failing fake news is because he doesn't want media and what the media reports about him to be taken seriously. And so do you think that this decline in trust in the government, in the media, is this related to a surge in conspiracy theories? What I would say is that we know that conspiracy theories tend to wax and wane more in response to times of social upheaval and social change and not necessarily just because of increased distrust. It's also increased social instability. And so it's not necessarily that, you know, the new and ever-changing forms of distrust in media and government uh, lead to new conspiracy theories, but it leads to sort of new forms of the same conspiracy theories. One that I'm specifically thinking of right now is the crisis actor conspiracy theory, the idea that mass shootings are false flags perpetrated by the government with the help of crisis actors and reported on by a media who is, you know, part of the cover-up. Like, that is sort of a new one, and it's kind of related to the linked distrust in government and media. And so you say that conspiracism tends to rise in times of social upheaval. You know, how would you define the social upheaval right now? Is it about uh, increasing economic inequality? Is that what is prompting this surge? I mean, I think in part, but not entirely, I think that economic inequality and instability is a big one. I think the sort of growing, as much as I hate this term, partisan divide is part of it, and also that people feel increasingly disenfranchised and locked out of systems of power, whether it's, you know, voting or whether it's something as sort of intimate to our lives as the healthcare system. We have all these things that govern us right now that don't work very well, that feel really opaque. And I think that that leads to a rise in all kinds of distrust, all kinds of conspiracy theorizing, and a lot of other stuff besides. You know, we're also seeing a huge wave of anti-immigrant sentiment and increased, you know, open, visible white supremacist and white nationalist movements. And those are all, you know, fed by actors who want to take advantage of the economic and social instability that we're experiencing right now. What I really liked about your book is that you not only talked about class and race, as you just did, in conspiracy theories, but also gender. Mm. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that, how you think that gender anxieties are playing into the current surge in conspiracism? Yeah. You know, this was something that was kind of weird to me about a lot of, you know, I think we both know that the 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 world of conspiracy theory writing, there are a lot of men in it. There are a lot of white men and a lot of them seemingly do not pick up on the fact that a lot of major conspiracy theory actors on the right are virulently sexist. It is part of their appeal, especially somebody like Alex Jones, who ties in his thoughts about, you know, the new world order with the idea that feminism literally is a tool of the Illuminati. Now, do you think these conspiracy theorists actually believe their theories or mm. are they just using them to get money and power? I do not think that we are equipped to see into someone else's heart or mind. It's very hard to understand somebody's motivations. And I think a lot of journalists especially like to try. Uh, they like to play sort of armchair psychoanalyst. And I 
don't think that we should do that. So I think that we can look instead at what people's actions are. For instance, Alex Jones, I always return to him because he's had a very long career and has been pretty consistent about even some of the wilder claims that he makes. So whether or not he believes them in his heart of hearts when he goes to bed at night, I know that he spends a lot of time and money and effort promoting them. So in some ways, I don't care what these folks really believe. I care what they do. One of the people who have used conspiracy theories for their own gain is, of course, uh, President Trump. Can you talk a little bit about how he used conspiracy theories to gain attention and get elected? So I think that the most important conspiracy moment for Donald Trump is birtherism. He was a key promoter of birtherism, and it got him a level of attention that he had not previously achieved. Like, we forget this, but Barack Obama had to have a press conference to release his long-form birth certificate, which is crazy. But it was him directly acknowledging a conspiracy theory led by Donald Trump, you know, who was claiming that he had investigators down there uh, looking into Obama's citizenship. It would seem that something like that is pretty intoxicating for somebody like Donald Trump, who we know is much like Nixon, obsessed with the idea that the elites don't take him seriously. That is a very sort of key part of what seems to drive him is wanting respect, and if not respect, then attention and maybe even notoriety. So, I mean, and again, we saw this throughout the election is his use of conspiracy theories, misinformation, sort of thinly guised white nationalist ideas um, to gain power and build a base of support. And it worked. It worked really, really well for him. And we see him doing it still. You know, one of the ones that I found most chilling was when he accused his opponents of inflating the death toll during Hurricane Maria, which is a crazy thing to say. It makes absolutely no sense. But it is really sort of a cold calculation on his part, which is the knowledge that the number of people who died was a scandal for the U.S. government. And so the best that he could do was to say that that number of people was fake news. I think what's unusual about the Trump administration is that they are the winners, Mm -hmm. right? They're in control of the government. And the political science tells us that uh, conspiracy theories are for losers. Right. And so it is almost as if they are coming up with reasons to be losers, to be victims Mm -hmm. by saying, okay, it might appear that we're in charge of the government, but actually there's this deep state working against us. Right. Yeah. I mean, at its simplest form, it's just passing the buck, right? It's just saying, well, you know, we would have done all these things, but we couldn't because the deep state was there. But I will, to be fair to the Trump administration, which is not a sentence that I would normally say, there is an unprecedented number of leaks from the Trump White House. We do know that. I mean, I think about this all the time. Somebody wrote an anonymous op-ed for The New York Times claiming to be someone within the Trump administration working to prevent him from fulfilling his own worst impulses. And we never found out who that person is. You know, seemingly everyone in the Trump White House was recording one another. They all immediately leave and either go on Dancing with the Stars or write a tell-all book, you know, and eventually Melania will do the same. Um, And so it's, you know, like, as paranoid as they are in a baseless way, there is also something there in the sense that they do have a lot of folks within the government who are not some kind of shadowy deep state, but, you know, longtime government employees who are horrified by the dissolution of a bunch of different government departments, like the State Department, which is still half empty to this day. And I think it's a very powerful concept because they're drawing on 
uh, older concepts like the military-industrial complex or the invisible government or the secret government, um, which tended to be more on the left. And they're appropriating that and putting it on the right. Yeah, it's really, really interesting to watch that happen. I think Mark Lofgren called it a casino with a tilted wheel, which again, yeah, is not fake the idea that there is some level of entrenched corruption in government, that there is a revolving door of, you know, people who leave government service and immediately go into lobbying. Like, that is not not real, but it's also not the type of corruption or graft that the Trump administration is actually interested in. There are so many examples of uh, documented real conspiracies Mm. that it's hard to know uh, which are true and which are not. Right. And I think the difficulty of uh, finding a line between the the truth and the conspiracy theories, the fact that that's so hard to draw is what gives a lot of force to many of these anti-government conspiracy theories today. Right. The one interesting thing for me to be a real bummer is that, um, you know, I experience, I I hear a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories when I'm out and about uh, visiting folks, not in my day-to-day life so much, but in in my work, I hear a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And one interesting thing to me is um, how often anti-government conspiracy theories or even something like flat eartherism eventually turns into something like Holocaust denial because of, again, this baseline idea that the government lies and that, you know, anything could be possible, any cover-up is possible or likely because of our history. And it's really sort of both fascinating and alarming how many times people enter this world through one door and the door that they eventually come out of is, well, the Holocaust must not have happened either. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't know if that's something that comes up for you because I know you focus mostly on the U.S., but I am finding this among U.S. conspiracy theorists, even flat earthers. Right. And it's interesting that you draw that connection Mm -hmm. between Holocaust denial and flat earthers because what they're saying is, okay, the government has lied in the past, Mm -hmm. so therefore historians are lying now, and even scientists are lying. I mean, this is something that is really mind-boggling for me Mm -hmm. is that people are not just distrusting the government, they're also distrusting the nation's most acclaimed scientists. They think everybody is lying to them. Yeah, in a way, flat eartherism specifically strikes me as kind of like nihilistic almost, where it's just saying literally nothing can possibly be believed. Everything is a lie. You know, even the foundations of the earth itself. Cricket Minis is brought to you by Sleep Number. When was the last time you really slept great? Isn't it strange that we'll just try about anything to sleep better within it when it actually could be time for a new mattress? If you aren't getting the quality sleep you deserve, we recommend Sleep Number. Right now at Sleep Number stores, it's the biggest sale of the year. All beds are on sale and queen mattresses start at only $899. My Sleep Number setting, it's $100. And that's what you get with Sleep Number. You can adjust each side so it's right for the both of you. How about a bed that helps keep you asleep? The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts so you're effortlessly comfortable all night. Will you love it? Just ask J.D. Power. Sleep Number has been ranked number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses for 2018 award information. Come in during the final days of the biggest sale of the year for a limited time, say 40% on a Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed. Hurry. Limited edition. It's limited edition. You could miss this chance. Line up in the streets. Sale not on for Sunday. For that bed. Yeah, not for sneakers. For, for mattress. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash crookedminis.com. 
Crooked Minis is brought to you by Simply Safe. When a home security system is triggered, a lot of time police assume it's a false alarm and the call goes to the bottom of the list, but not with Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe can Simply Safe can visually confirm that a break-in is happening, giving police precise information about where an intruder is in a home, so they'll have all the information they need to get there faster and catch so they'll, so they'll have all the information they need to get there faster. Simply Safe also protects every door, window, and room with 24/7 professional monitoring. I have Simply Safe. <laughs> Prices are always fair and honest. Around-the-clock monitoring starts at just $15 per month. It's won a ton of awards from CNET to the New York Times Wirecutter. And for our listeners, Simply Safe has a huge deal going on right now. Go to simplysafe.com/crookedminis and get free shipping and a money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com/crookedminis today. Simplysafe.com/crookedminis. Crooked Minis is brought to you by Credo Mobile. Do you stand for women's rights and for the environment? Yes. Now there's a phone company that stands with you. What? Credo Mobile. Credo is the only phone company in America that supports the same causes you do. Causes like fighting to stop climate change, protecting reproductive freedom, and standing for immigrant rights. In fact, Credo donates $150,000 every month to groups like Rainforest Action Network, Planned Parenthood, and the ACLU, and many more. Credo is just as opposed as you are to Donald Trump's agenda. And those other phone companies, they're cozying up to Trump, spending millions to push through mega mergers and funding right-wing politicians. What? Credo Credo is bringing... the woke the heat. phone company. You make choices every day about where you spend your money. Shouldn't your mobile phone be one of those choices? Switch to Credo Mobile now and you'll get a year of Ben & Jerry's ice cream on us. What? A pint a month what or 12 months. What is this? happening? What? What is this What is this magical company that's, that's supporting the ACLU and mailing ice cream to people's <laughs> houses? You'll also get coverage on the nation's best and most awarded 4G LTE network along with low rates and a complete selection of smartphones, including the latest models from the top brands. Ready to switch? Just enter the offer code MINI at checkout or go to credo.com slash mini. That's C-R-E-D-O dot com slash mini. I'm there. Crooked Minis is brought to you by the New York Times, which presents the lasting effects of bad paper discharge on military veterans. Since 2001, tens of thousands of service members have been forced out of the military with bad paper or a less than honorable discharge that prevents them from accessing VA healthcare and other veterans' benefits. Often, these administrative discharges for misconduct are the result of PTSD or traumatic brain injury as service members seek ways to cope with the invisible wounds they endured in the military. For these veterans, a bad paper discharge may have lifelong consequences. As research shows, it can lead to higher rates of unemployment, homelessness, and suicide. On September 11th at the Town and Gown Ballroom at the University of Southern California, Pulitzer Prize-winning Times journalist and Marine veteran C.J. Shivers will moderate a discussion on this issue. The panel will include national correspondent and Pulitzer Prize winner Dave Phillips, Rose Carmen Goldberg, a lecturer at UC Berkeley School of Law who represented veterans with bad paper as a supervising staff attorney at Swords to Plowshares, a veterans' rights organization in San Francisco, as well as Monique Janea, a Navy veteran who was discharged with bad paper. Mr. Shivers and Mr. Phillips are both contributors to At War, the Times' channel for exploring the experiences and costs of war. Continue the conversation with the journalists and other attendees after the event is over at the post-event reception. Get tickets at timesevents.newyorktimes.com slash atwarla. That's timesevents.nytimes.com slash at war LA. Tickets are $15 for Crooked Media listeners. Use the code CROOKED at checkout. It sounds like a really great event. So go check that out if you are in the area. Go. Seems cool. Now, we've been talking about right-wing conspiracy theories mm-hmm. because of President Trump. But, of course, there are left-wing conspiracy theories. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you see as the differences between right-wing and left-wing conspiracy theories? Left-wing conspiracy theories are probably 
in general, more anti-establishment than right wing. As you pointed out earlier, there are a lot of sort of anti-government conspiracy theories um, that arose on the left in the 60s and 70s that were about, you know, CIA projects and things like that. So they're sort of fundamentally about government abuse. I would also Mm -hmm. say that there are some that are sort of more tied to suspicion over big corporations, uh, for instance, conspiracy theories about Monsanto or about um, GMOs more broadly being bad for your health or, you know, at the extreme end, GMOs being part of some kind of project of mind control, I would say are more common on the left. And I think about that because I'm from Santa Fe, which is a pretty, you know, left-leaning and sometimes kooky place. And when I gave my book talk at home, a woman got very mad at me in the audience for saying that there's no evidence that GMOs are, are bad for human health. Like, that is... You know, approaching a a really um, orthodox opinion in some places. And then there are conspiracy theories like anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, which I find on the right and left alike in different ways. Yeah, some of those fusion ones are are very interesting because they combine um, the uh, suspicion of corporations and the suspicion of government. And it's um, hard to know where to place them on the political spectrum. Right. I mean, it's no wonder that the anti-vaccine movement is so big, you know, because it encompasses crunchy homeschooling granola parents and, you know, right wing evangelical Christians. Like there are a lot of folks under that umbrella. So it's not surprising to me that it's gotten as major as it has. How do you think Trump might use conspiracy theories to win re-election? Do you think that's something that we need to worry about? Yeah, obviously he will. Whether he does so in any kind of way that is actually like systematic or effective remains to be seen because his brain is disintegrating. But um, I would say that in the 2020 elections, we should be really concerned about misinformation and disinformation broadly and conspiracy theories as a subset of that. I would expect to see something like what happened in the last elections in France with the Macron leaks, which is that there will come out of nowhere some supposed dossier of embarrassing information about whoever Trump's opponent ends up being. Like, I would I would strongly expect to see mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, also, we know pretty clearly that he and his allies will probably use some degree of anti-immigrant conspiracy theorizing, you know, depending on depending on how urgently they feel they need to do that. So I think that there will be potentially a lot of different conspiracy theories at play in the election. Yeah. Yes. The the spilling over the border and then voting for Democrats. Right. right? Exactly. Illegally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a good point, obviously, because last time he was claiming right up until the day of the election that they were going to be rigged and then took up that claim again early on in his presidency, the idea that Hillary Clinton only won the popular vote because of the number of people voting illegally. So that is a really good point that we should probably expect to see that again, too, because there's no reason why he wouldn't make that claim. And conversely, I think if he's reelected, we'll see that claim from the left, the idea that the election was rigged. Right. It's So it's um, possible to make yourself a victim that way, to say, I was actually uh, the winner, but somebody else stole it from me. Yeah, exactly. No matter what. It's a very like effective yeah. conspiracy theory, no matter what happens, whether he's reelected or not. One interesting thing for me about the upcoming elections is the number of people I know on the left, my friends, my you know acquaintances, saying that they think that Trump will not leave office if he loses, mm-hmm. which on the one mm-hmm. hand is like so he's joked about staying in office for 10 years. Like it's not it's not uh, completely ridiculous or out of nowhere that people are expressing this worry. But it's also exactly what happened on the right with President Obama. I remember WorldNet Daily, you know, Joseph Farah, the publisher of WorldNet Daily, 
be pushing this idea that President Obama was not going to leave office, that he was going to declare martial law to hang on to power. So it's really, really interesting for me to see it exactly reversed. Right. And as a historian, I see this over and over again um, in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. So, for example, even during World War II, uh, the right-wing isolationists who really hated President Roosevelt were, first of all, convinced that he was going to cancel the 1942 midterm elections and and then that he was going to cancel the 1944 elections and and stay on president for life. Right. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think it kind of speaks to this sense we have of the fragility of our democracy, which it is genuinely very fragile. It's subject to oceans of dark money. The Electoral College is a pretty lopsided system. There are plenty of reasons to be concerned about it. But it's interesting how, I guess, consistently it expresses itself in the fear that the president specifically is going to cling to power like a dictator. Let's talk about um, where uh, we are in the world. Mm. I mean, it isn't just uh, a surge in conspiracism in the United States, right? It's happening all over the world. Why is is this happening? Well, I mean, I think, again, we see a bunch of especially right-wing authoritarian leaders who really, really benefit from conspiracy theorism in some form because for a number of reasons. I keep recommending this book, Fortress Russia, which is about post-Soviet Russia, and it really talks about the ways that specifically Vladimir Putin sought to use conspiracy theories to solidify his base, to rally them against Mm -hmm. a common enemy, and to inspire a sort of nationalistic impulse that is really beneficial for Mm -hmm. authoritarians and would-be authoritarians. They can say, you know, look at this hated outsider who's threatening you. If you don't rally behind us, they're going to destroy you. But so it's also, you know, it's not just coalescing your base against a foreign enemy. It's also identifying policy proposals that you either find attractive and want to increase or things that you would really prefer that your voter base ignore. Like Poland is one of the biggest coal producers in the world. And so there is no coverage of climate change in Poland. There's just hardly any discussion of it. And when there is, there's a lot of doubt about, well, you know, is this real? Maybe this is a scientific cover up. And so, again, like it it works for so many different people in so many different ways. It sounds like you mainly see conspiracy theories as a tool. Yes, for people in power. But I think it's also really important to point out that throughout American history, especially conspiracy theories have primarily been a tool for understanding the world used by the folks who are most disenfranchised. You know, my book has a whole chapter about conspiracy theories among black Americans. And the whole point is that conspiracy theories among black Americans are based in things that actually happened historically to those populations. Like the idea of the Tuskegee experiment, the idea that people were deliberately deprived of medical care for syphilis so that government scientists could watch how the disease progressed, again, sounds like something that is too monstrous to be true, but it was true. And so when you see that there are higher rates, for instance, of medical conspiracism among black Americans even today, it is understandable why that is. So I think that... um, One way to think about this is that conspiracism is for everybody. It works for authoritarians and ordinary people alike in different ways, but it helps everyone make sense of the world. And of course, the ordinary people and authoritarians alike are getting a lot of their information from the Internet, from social media. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think that uh, the Internet and social media have really created a very different environment in which it's much easier to spread conspiracy theories? Or is it just uh, more of the same Mm -hmm. in a different medium? So I think the important thing to point out is that social media has been incredibly 
powerful as a tool to spread information of all kinds, good and bad. Mm. It is a pipeline, and the pipeline is not discerning. Uh, what I would say is that I think that social media has made it easier for conspiracy theories to spread to a bigger audience. Certainly something like QAnon, you know, is entirely sort of born aloft on the wings of Twitter. And it's easier for conspiracy communities to find each other and sort of fuse together, you know, and it's easier for conspiracy theories to keep going and keep sort of um, shaping themselves into new forms because the groups, subreddits, Twitter hashtags that are devoted to pushing those conspiracy theories can kind of continue advancing their research collectively in different directions. Yes, back with the in the '60s with the JFK assassination conspiracy theories, um, the theorists who who called themselves uh, researchers, mm-hmm. they had a really hard time locating one another. They had to go to conventions, or sometimes they would write letters to the paper, oh. and then they would uh, other people would see those letters and they'd try and find out their address and they'd write them, and then they'd all meet in somebody's living room. <laughs> um, so it was very difficult to form a community. I mean, they still managed to do it; it was possible, but right. of course now it's unimaginably easier to find people who think as you do and to find uh, documents that allegedly support your views. Absolutely. And it's also easier to get famous this way. You know, if you were somebody who would like some measure of fame, infamy, power, money, you know, like this is another way to do it. Right. Mm. And conspiracy theories are very entertaining. So that enables people to get an audience if they're able to uh, come up with a particularly entertaining version of a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I think that's totally right. They're they're entertaining. They sort of outline the world maybe in clearer and more emotionally satisfying terms. And they also allow people to feel like they are participating in the world. You know, when you're part of a conspiracy Mm -hmm. community, I watch this with the QAnon folks or the Pizzagate folks, like they feel like they are part of a collective struggle for justice. It's kind of intoxicating, I think, for a lot of folks. Do you think that we're going to be able to recover? Do you see a a future in which we are not plagued by conspiracy theories that say after President Trump leaves office? I think that maybe this is spurring sort of a needed national conversation about trust in our institutions and about sort of how especially like we as journalists kind of show our work and build public trust back up. But I don't know how possible any of that is going to be. Again, we created these incredibly powerful pipelines, and I don't know that we can figure out a way to make them solely serve us fresh water and not sewage and garbage is a metaphor I've used before. I would say that I'm maybe more pessimistic than other people, but I would like to not be. What do you think? Uh, you also use the metaphor in your book yeah. of saying that conspiracy theories are the are the symptom, not the disease, right. Right. which means that we can't just say to people, oh, go to Snopes and find out the truth, right. that in fact, uh, they're just symptoms of much deeper problems in American society. Yeah, which is, again, a point that you make also in your book, the idea that if we really want a less suspicious society, we have to build a more equitable and just and transparent one. And then some of this work gets done for us. But that is not a quick fix. Right. And I have to say, I am more pessimistic than I was. I mean, Mm. the first edition of my my book came out in 2009, so 10 years ago. And I really believed that uh, transparency would be the answer. You know, President Obama was pledging to be more transparent. And I thought, oh, that will be so helpful. Mm. And of course, it didn't help at all. Because so the political environment had become so polarized that his political enemies just did not believe anything that he said. Yeah. And his presidency also revved up all of these sort of far right groups who saw him as, you know, the realization of all their worst fears. 
right? And just gave them right. all kinds of ammunition. You'd think that they would admit in hindsight maybe that he wasn't actually a Manchurian candidate who's going to seize all of our guns and throw <laughs> us in FEMA camps. But, you know, maybe maybe someday they will. For people who want to find out the facts about a conspiracy theory that is maybe shared with them on, on social media, where would you recommend that they they go? Is there some one-stop shop? I would immediately recommend Snopes. You know, they're very clear about outlining what the conspiracy theory is, where they think it came from, and whether or not it's true. So what has been fascinating for me lately is the number of right-wing outlets and personalities who want to paint Snopes as a partisan project. But I mean, one thing you can say to people who are conspiracy curious about one thing or another is that you don't really ever have to rely on one source of information. You can actually look up multiple views and multiple ideas. And especially if you are not confining yourself to one medium, you don't have to rely on one person's word ever. On the next episode of State of Conspiracy, we'll go back to the 1960s and 70s and explore the major historical events, like the assassination of JFK and Watergate, that led to our current polarized political environment. State of Conspiracy is produced by Caroline Reston and Elisa Gutierrez. Our engineers this week were Kyle Seglin, Noel Fernandez, and Genevieve Bowman. Our editor is Daniel Carissimi. 